Welcome to the New Books Network. Many countries achieved independence in the mid-20th century. Among them, India, Pakistan, South Korea, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Israel. Today, we focus on just one of them. Our guest, Daniel Gordis, takes a broad and deep look at Israel as it celebrates 75 years of independence. Where has it succeeded? And where has it fallen short of its founders' goals and dreams? Daniel Gordis is the Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Jerusalem and the author of 12 previous books, including the award-winning Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. Welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host. I'm honored to welcome Daniel Gordis to the show today to discuss his new book, Impossible Takes Longer, 75 Years After Its Creation, Has Israel Fulfilled Its Founders' Dreams? Daniel Gordis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. It's an honor to be here. Daniel, so many countries became independents around the same time as Israel, both in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world. They all have their struggles and conflicts, which we seldom read about or hear about. But little Israel is always in the news. Why is that? That is one of the great imponderables. Uh, I think that in Israel's case, one of the reasons that it's in the news is because it's such a surprising story. There's something almost magical or mythical about it. And when you think about this people that had been homeless for almost 2,000 years and then comes to the precipice of extinction with two out of three European Jews being killed in the 1930s and 40s with uh, 90% of Polish Jewry being slaughtered. And then very quickly after that, there's a state. Or if you want to look at the rapidity of Zionism in a different way, uh, Theodore Herzl gathers together approximately 200 delegates in a hall in Basel in 1897. And a mere 30 years later, the British say in the Balfour Declaration that His Majesty's government, etc., views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. And 30 years after that, the UN votes. Uh, at the beginning, Israel has no no money, and it's now obviously a very, very significant economic power. Israel has no natural resources, so it converts human capital into a natural national resource. Uh, it's surrounded by enemies on all sides, and today Israel has peace with Egypt, Jordan, UAE, Bahrain, um, Sudan, Morocco, rumors about Saudi Arabia. It's just such a such a surprising story. That's the good side of the story. The bad side of the story, the question of why is the world pay so much attention to Israel, I think is the same answer as why do people in Charlottesville chant Jews will not replace us? Um, what did the Jews have to do with those protests in Charlottesville? There's a way in which the Jews have played an outsized role in human history, sometimes in productivity and creativity, but sometimes in being singled out and I think that Israel is part of that phenomenon as well. What do you mean when you write in your book that the early Zionist thinkers and politicians' ideas were, and this is a breathtaking phrase, to change the existential condition of the Jewish people? 
I think what the early Zionist leaders, Herzl, but some who had come even before him, uh, and certainly those who came after, they had a sense, first of all, that Jewish life in Europe, which was the main Jewish world that they knew, they were completely oblivious to the existence of Jews in North Africa. They thought that America was a, a new experiment, but they weren't quite sure where it was heading. Uh, but what they saw about Jews in Europe was they had a sense that Jewish life in Europe was living on borrowed time that it simply was not going to end well, and that it was going to end soon. Now, they couldn't have known what was going to happen in the 30s and the 40s uh, with the Third Reich. They had no way of knowing that, but they did have a sense. Look, they had a sense, Bialik wrote about this in many poems, Alashrita on the slaughter, the Irhahariga in the city of slaughter. Bialik wrote that what's happened to the Jew, he, he or she has become a kind of an emaciated, passive, victimized person who just waits from one program to the to the next to want, find out what's going to happen. Uh, they had a sense that that's just not how a normal people lives. It was time to take responsibility for their own destiny and to live in a place where they could control their future. Others wrote about cultural matters. They said, what kind of a people doesn't speak its own language? I mean, can you imagine the world of Dostoevsky existing without Russian or the world of Camus or Flaubert, you know, without French, it's impossible to imagine. So why were the Jews speaking Yiddish, which was as far as they were concerned, a somewhat bastardized language, or Russian or German, when they could be speaking a language of their own? And why had the Jews receded from the forefront of the intellectual marketplace of ideas throughout the world and become kind of sequestered into small little shtetlach all over Europe. They just had a sense that Jewish life had departed very, very far from the grandeur of its early days. And the purpose of a Jewish state was to restore the Jewish people to the grandeur of old. But it was also created to be a particular kind of democracy. Uh, we call it an ethnic democracy and. In our writings, uh, how is an ethnic democracy different from a liberal democracy such as the U.S.? An ethnic democracy is a much more difficult dance, <laughs> is what I would say. Let's start with a liberal democracy, and let's just take the United States as a classic example, though there are, of course, many others. In the United States, everybody has, in theory, uh, equal rights doesn't matter whether they are Hispanic or Asian, black or white, Jewish or Christian or Muslim, natives or immigrants. If you're an American, you have a complete right to the same opportunities that every other American has, opportunities and protections, I think one should say. Uh, and so now let's fast forward 50 years from now. Let's just say hypothetically, uh, America is mostly Asian or America is mostly Hispanic, whatever. And uh, as a result of that, Congress reflects that new demographic balance and Congress is mostly Asian and Congress is mostly Hispanic. And then the president, let's say, is Asian or Hispanic. Is that a failure or a success of American democracy? Well, obviously, it's a success of American democracy. That's exactly what America was meant to be. Now let's go to Israel. Let's assume 50 years from now, Israel's mostly Arab, and therefore the Knesset is mostly Arab, and the prime minister is an Arab. Is that a failure or a success of Israel's democracy? And here it's more complicated. What I think one would have to say is 
that it's a success of the apparatus, the mechanism of Israeli democracy, but it's a failure of the dream that the Zionists had, which was that in this particular case, unlike the United States, one particular ethnicity would be at the center of the project. The project was about not give me your tired, your poor, teeming masses yearning to breathe free, which is the American motto at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty by Emma Lazarus, But the purpose of this state was to contribute to the flourishing of the Jewish people. And therefore, an ethnic democracy is a very nimble dance between, on the one hand, guaranteeing to all citizens, regardless of their heritage, their background, their ethnicity, their race, their gender, whatever it may be, guaranteeing them all the same rights, opportunities, and protections, at the same time as one makes it very clear that one ethnicity, in this particular case, the Jewish people, stands at the center of the purpose of the project. So in the United States, you wouldn't have an anthem that speaks about Christian aspirations, but in Hatikva, you do. Nefesh Yehudi Homiya, the Jewish soul yearns. In the United States, you wouldn't have a cross on the national flag, but in Israel, you have a Magen David, you have a Star of David. You wouldn't have an overtly Christian symbol as the symbol of the United States. The eagle is hardly a Christian symbol. Uh, but in Israel, we have the menorah that was taken from the Second Temple and placed on the Arch of Titus in the form that it appears in our symbol. Those are all many ways of saying that, and of course, the law of return, I guess, ought to be mentioned here as well, that every Jew, no matter where she or he may live, has an automatic right to come to Israel as a citizen. Uh, which, of course, is not true of other people. They can apply for citizenship. They might get it. They might not. So that's what an ethnic democracy is. It has all of the characteristics of a liberal democracy at the same time that it places the flourishing of one particular ethnicity at the core of its purpose. That's always going to be a nimble dance. It's always going to be a hard balance, but that's the challenge that Israel took for itself. And speaking of ethnicity... Uh, more than half of Israeli Jews are Mizrahi, that is, of Arab and North African backgrounds. And in addition, of course, there's a large non-Jewish Arab minority. So why is Israel still considered white in the public mind? It's a great question, and it's really imponderable. And in a lot of ways, I think it's because of the history that we tell about ourselves. Because as you point out correctly, Israel is not white. In other words, um, more than half of Israel's Jews are now Mizrahi. So let's just say hypothetically that Jews make up 80% of the of the population. If more than half of them are Mizrahi, so that's Let's just say 41, 42, 43%. And we know that Arabs are 20%, as you quite rightly just said. So that's already 60-something percent, meaning that most of Israelis are not white. Most of Israelis are darker than that. Uh, But we tell a very Ashkenazi story when we tell the story of Israel. Even I, in my History of Israel book, I have to say, where, where does Zionism get started. It gets started in Europe with Herzl and Nordau and Jabotinsky and Achad Ha'am and Bialik and so forth. The origins of the state of Israel are very Ashkenazi. And for many of those people, the Mizrahi world was off the map. And by the way, that's not really an unfair criticism. I mean, it wasn't unfair of them to think that. In 1935, uh, there were 17 million Jews in the world. One million of them were Mizrahi. So what is 17%? What is what is one out of 17? Is 5%, 6%, 7%, something like that. The Mizrahim were really actually 
factually a relatively marginal phenomenon. Um, and they were very, very far away from Europe, so they didn't make much of an impression. What changed that, of course, was that Hitler exterminated two-thirds of Europe's Jews. Um, and Jews who could stay where they were relatively comfortable, by and large, did not come to Israel. The Jews who came to Israel, by and large, were the Jews for whom life was miserable where they lived. And that was overwhelmingly true of Jews from the Levant, North Africa, Yemen, Iraq, Iran. They were the ones who came. They had a slightly higher birth rate. So the combination of the destruction of European Jewry and the massive influx of Mizrahi Jewry has, over the course of time, led to Israel being brown. But um, it's not really it's not really reflected, as you quite rightly pointed out in your question, in the way that people think about Jews. The other thing that I'll or about Israel, the other thing that I would just point out is that you know thinking of Israel as white plays very conveniently into the lens through which much of the progressive world thinks about life in general, which is power and color. And if you portray Israel as white, then almost by definition, the way people look at the world today, when white means meets color and there's conflict, almost by definition, white is wrong. When powerful meets unpowerful in today's world, almost by definition, the powerful is wrong. So if you make Israel white and powerful, and you make Palestinians brown and not powerful, that fits very well into the narrative of contemporary life in America, which makes Israel fundamentally wrong. So it's a kind of a convenient way of indicting Israel even before the conversation gets started. Uh, you mentioned the importance of language to Israel's founders. And in fact, one of the many astounding accomplishments of those founders was the revival of Hebrew from a sacred language used exclusively for scripture, study, and prayer, to a modern language of everyday life. Tell us more about that fabulous story of intellect meeting obsession. <laughs> I love the way you put that, intellect meeting obsession, because, I mean, it's really true. Eliezer ben Yehuda, who's considered the father of modern Hebrew, was obsessed. I mean, really obsessed. Um, according to many biographical accounts of his life, uh, he actually did not allow his children to speak to other children because he wanted his children to grow up speaking only Hebrew, and no other children spoke Hebrew. So they had no friends. They had their own nuclear family. Um, it's not accidental that, if, that every Israeli city, large, middle-sized, and I'm guessing even small, though I confess I haven't checked completely, has a, a Ben Yehuda street. Because Ben Yehuda is the part of the Zionist rebirth of the Jewish people that's not tied to issues of physical power or changing victimhood to non-victimhood. It's about the rebirth of the Jewish soul. It's about the Jewish people speaking, once again, the language of the Bible, which is the book that tells the story of the Jews, the last time the Jews were a people worthy of the notion of being a people, as the early Zionists would have put it. So there's an intellectual program, which is to do a lot of research. He read tens of thousands of books and hundreds of thousands of pages, scouring both Arabic and ancient languages for new Hebrew words that he could use, scouring the Bible. So Ezekiel uses the word chashmal, and he takes it and uses it for modern for modern electricity. Uh, he takes glida from other languages. Um, 
he does a lot, which is very intellectual, but you're right. It's a kind of a passionate embrace of the idea of a language along with an intellectual uh, commitment to it. And I don't know how you feel, but every time I walk into an Israeli bookstore and I see thousands of linear feet of books that a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, to be sure, virtually no one in the world spoke. And they range from, you know, trashy novels to profound nonfiction and great literature, cookbooks and travel books and self-help books, and you name it, all in this language that 150 years ago, nobody spoke. It is really one of the amazing miracles uh, and accomplishments of the Zionist movement. Um, And it's part of what makes Israel what it is, is this unique language. And language can express uh, ideas and emotions in a very compact way, uh, like the name of Tel Aviv, the first Hebrew city, which was founded in 1909. Um, tell us how that expresses a fundamental dynamic of the return to Zion and to Hebrew. Well, Tel Aviv is in itself an extraordinary phenomenon when we think about the fact that in 1909 it didn't exist and people from Yafo, which is just south of Tel Aviv, and many people that are listening to us are probably walked from Yafo to Tel Aviv, and if they haven't, it's a very easy walk. They just walked north on the beach, and they basically drew lines in the sand, as we often say, and they said, here will be a street, here will be a house, et cetera, et cetera, and they picked lots who was going to get what house, uh, and, that was, and they called it Tel Aviv, even though the phrase, by the way, Tel Aviv does appear in the Bible, but the idea of Tel Aviv was that it represented old and new, and it it, it it evoked, to a certain extent, uh, the name of the novel that Theodore Herzl wrote called Alt Neuland, Old New Land. Herzl wrote two famous books. One was The Jewish State, which he wrote in 1896, which basically gave birth to the Zionist movement. And the other was this very idealized uh, version of what life in Palestine slash Israel would eventually look like, which he called Alt Neuland, Old New Land. And Tel Aviv, Tel is an archaeological phenomenon whereby civilizations are buried one on top of the other. So the mountain is kind of a, a seven-layer cake of different civilizations. It, it, tel means old, buried, forgotten. And Aviv is spring new, rebirth, flowering, and so forth. So Tel Aviv is alt-noi, old-new. So by calling it Tel Aviv, which is a biblical phrase, what they were really doing is saying, we're naming this city after a novel written by the man who had the idea of a Jewish state. Yeah, I just love it because it's so compact and it has so much in it to unpack. Uh, Okay, so we agree. Israel has extraordinary accomplishments, including ranking in the top 10 happiest countries in the world happiest survey. Number four right now, actually. Yeah, right. Uh, But given that, why is the word conflict the first association that comes to mind when Israel is mentioned? That's the painful side of the story. Um, Israel is in conflict. Israel has been in a conflict since the moment it was created. Now, it's important to remember that a lot of the conflicts that Israel was involved with when it was created are over. Uh, The conflict between Israel and standing surrounding armies is over. No standing army has attacked Israel again since the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Uh, The conflict between Israel and even Arab states beyond our borders, because we already have peace with Egypt and Jordan, as we said earlier, but we have 
peace with other states that are far away from our borders and other countries that we don't have peace with are effectively neutralized. I mean, Israel's technically in a state of war with Syria, but when Israel takes military action against Syria right now, it's not really Syria, it's Iran. Um, Israel was attacked by Iraq in 1948. There's no meaningful conflict between Israel and Iraq anymore. Iran remains a serious menace, both from afar and much closer to our borders in Lebanon and Gaza. But a lot of the conflict is important to remember. A lot of the conflict has been settled. I think that we often forget that when we talk about the tragic, grinding, horrifying conflict that endures with the Palestinians. Uh, you and I are having this conversation literally as rockets and military exp- you know, operations are taking place, and people on both sides of the border are suffering. Now, why does conflict come to mind for most people? Again, that's another interesting question. I mean, so much of the world is in conflict. Why is this the one that everybody talks about? Uh, the United States, as I point out in the book, has been at war for 85, 90% of the years since it was created in 1776. But people think of the United States as a country that only intermittently goes to war, even though that's not true. Why does Israel's conflict with the Palestinians play such a profoundly preeminent role in the image of the pe- that people have of Israel? I think, again, largely because um, this is a very, very... Uh, enthralling, mythical, almost magical kind of story, which attracts a lot of attention. Some of it has to do with what we talked about before, which is the power and color lenses, which makes Israel almost invariably wrong. And I think we should also acknowledge the Palestinians have been brilliant and effective at bringing their cause to the internet to the attention of the international community. They have a legitimate cause. I mean, we don't want people on either side of this border to live in suffering. We don't want people on either side of this border to live in fear for their lives. And we don't want people on either side of this border to live under the control of another people. That's all that's all true. But at the same time, I think um, what the world likes to focus on more is the way in which Israel is involved in a conflict and less on the role that the Palestinians themselves have played in perpetuating the conflict. People do not recall that the Arab countries went to Khartoum after the 1967 uh, victory in the Six-Day War, when Israel had basically offered, essentially, we'll give you back the land if you recognize us and have peace. And they went and they said, no peace, no recognition, no negotiations. Uh, and ever since then, there's been a decision made that the Palestinians would not be absorbed into Lebanon, Syria, or Jordan, that they would live as an as a separate entity, largely really as pawns in a, in a uh, proxies, really, in a, in, a, in a battle between other countries and Israel. Some of those countries actually now made peace with Israel. The Palestinian story is tragic, uh, but at the same time, much of the reason for the perpetuation of the Palestinian conflict lies in the fact that the Palestinian population has still not accepted Israel's existence. Uh, in many ways, I think of today's, literally, today's ongoing battle with Gaza, Islamic Jihad this time, not Hamas, The way to think about it, I think, is that it's the latest battle in the War of Independence. Israel's War of Independence was a war to survive against the wishes of its surrounding neighbors, and eventually most of those neighbors said, okay, you're here to stay. Um, One of those neighbors, the Palestinians, has not yet said, you're here to stay. 
Uh, and that's why we're still at war. It's tragic. But why this particular conflict occupies um, the attention of the international community in ways that other conflicts don't, I think, again, that goes back to the unique role that Jews have always had in human history, ever since there was a Jewish people, in terms of being singled out for all sorts of reasons. Uh, you uh, explain a very cogent uh, theory of the psychological dynamic of fear and humiliation that maintains the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And you use it to explain why a two-state solution, which seems so obvious to outsiders, is unpopular to both sides. Tell us about that dynamic. I want to give credit uh, to Micha Goodman, who came up with this notion of Jews or Israelis being motivated fundamentally by fear and Palestinians being motivated mostly by humiliation. That's Micha's, I think, really brilliant uh, way of pithily characterizing what animates both sides. And what he points out so effectively in a really wonderful book is that when Israelis try to take steps to lessen their fear, what it does is invariably increase the humiliation of the Palestinians. And when the Palestinians take steps to limit their humiliation, whatever they do increases the fear of Israelis. And therefore, Micha actually argues, and I think, again, very compellingly, uh, that the thing to do is to try to not end the conflict now, because the conflict tragically can't be ended, but to what he calls shrink the conflict, try to lessen Israelis' presence in the daily lives of Palestinians so that Palestinian humiliation will decrease, and doing it in a way that does not in any significant fashion, uh, increase the risks to Israel so that Israelis' fear does not increase. So he talks about, for example, building roads and bridges between various Palestinian, what you might call cantons in the, in the West Bank, so that they can move from place to place and never see an Israeli soldier, never have to go through an Israeli checkpoint. He talks about investing more money in the economy of the West Bank so that their lives would improve. That obviously decreases their humiliation, and there's no reason for their decreased poverty to increase our fear. Um, so that's, that's, his, that's his innovation, and I want to make sure to give full credit where, where credit is due. But unfortunately, as I point out in the book, um, a majority of Israelis and a majority of Palestinians actually, ironically, no longer support a two-state solution. That's a, a very important data point in understanding this region. Uh, when I talk to American Jewish audiences, which I do very, very often, the conflict is the first issue that comes up for them. And what they want to know is, why can't there be a two-state solution? And when you point out that neither Israelis nor Palestinians anymore want a two-state solution for different reasons, um, they're, they're shocked. And then they say, well, what, you're going to continue this current situation, the current condition of this conflict forever? And of course, the answer to that is God willing, no. I mean, who wants to control another people? Who wants to see another people suffering? Um, and what are the options? There's all sorts of options. There's shrinking the conflict, like Micha Goodman has talked about. Uh, David Friedman, the former ambassador of the United States to Israel, of Israel, of the United States to Israel, has um, spoken openly about the fact that, for example, the United States owns Puerto Rico or Guam, or American Samoa. Um, they don't vote in national American elections, and by and large, day-to-day, -day, America doesn't get too much involved in their lives, but they are fundamentally owned and controlled by the United States. Could, is, could the Palestinians live in a 
kind of a Puerto Rico. I don't know. Maybe that's a possibility. I mean, Puerto Rico is not independent. That's for sure. And um, uh, Guam is not independent. That's for sure. There are middle of the road options. And I think what it's very important for us to all recognize is that when one says to Israelis, the only scenario in which we will not hold you accountable for this conflict is if you institute a two-state solution, uh, gets Israelis, to use the phrase that a teacher of mine always used to use, to turn off their hearing aids. Basically to say, you know what, that is so unrealistic at this point that if that's your approach, this is not a meaningful conversation. And I think what we need is meaningful conversation in which all the parties to the conversation understand that Palestinians have a vested interest in not continuing the situation. Israelis have a vested interest in not continuing the situation, but that the alternative is not necessarily a two-state solution, even though I wish it would come to be. I really do wish it would come to be. I don't think it's going to come to be. And therefore, my second question has to be, if um, that can't happen, what can happen? And that's the creative kind of conversation that Israelis and Palestinians need to have. And that's the creative kind of conversation that Israelis need to have with American Jews and European capitals so that we break out of the logjam that we're currently in. Of course, that conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, exists within the larger Middle East. And Events may be moving too fast for analysis at this moment, but I'll ask anyway. Uh, what are your thoughts about the growing relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran, brokered by China? And also, why were both the U.S. and Israel apparently taken by surprise by this development? Yeah, I think we don't understand that development yet. I, I think that uh, we just don't know exactly what's happening. I think it's very hard to assess to what extent the Saudis are really serious about that relationship or are using it to pressure the United States and Israel in certain ways so that the previously much discussed rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia might move forward. It's very hard for me to believe that the Saudis really think that Iran would not have designs on them. It's very hard for me to believe that the Saudis really think that China does not want, as part of its world domination, uh, to reduce Saudi power by virtue of its oil exports. So I think you're quite right that it's moving too fast for us to really know I mean, a year ago, we were talking about Saudi Arabia and Israel being on the cusp of an agreement. And now that seems very far away, largely because Netanyahu was going to be the architect of that agreement, as he sort of was, not really, but sort of was with the uh, Abraham Accords. And Netanyahu is quite obviously in no position to make any agreement with anyone now. He's barely holding on for his political life. I just don't think we understand what's going on with Saudi Arabia and China and, and Iran yet. Uh, but if it looks, if it is really what it looks like on the surface, it's of course very bad for Israel. I mean, if it really is what it seems to be, even though it may not be, and Saudi Arabia is really going to become an ally of Iran, uh, Iran is obviously sworn on Israel's destruction. Saudi Arabia may not be, but it's hardly a hugely pro-Zionist entity. Uh, it would be very bad for Israel if that was really what was developing. I just don't think we know if that's what's happening or not. So, at 75 years old, how does Israeli democracy compare with other countries who, which gained independence at the same time? We think of Israel as a very young country, but it's really not. 
uh, Israel was, I believe, the 60th country around that uh, to enter the United Nations shortly after independence was declared in 1948. It was a year or two later. Uh, and there are now about 190-something countries that are member states of the United Nations. So if Israel was 60-something and there's now 193 or 190-something, um, then Israel is actually older than two-thirds of the world's countries. Two-thirds of the world's countries are actually, ironically, even though we never think about it that way, younger than Israel. Uh, there are very few countries that were founded back then that have actually been flawlessly functioning democracies. By flawlessly functioning, all I mean is that every election that was had was conducted fairly, that whoever won the election entered office. Elections were never suspended. Elections were never taken over by the army. Uh, most of the countries that were created around the time that Israel was created have not had flawless democracies or have had coups or have had violence internal to the country because of political issues and so forth. In that regard, I think Israel has performed quite admirably and we have reason to be proud but that should not divert our attention from the very real threats to Israel's democracy that are now unfolding even as we speak. Um, and it should not divert our attention from the fact that as long as we remain an ethnic democracy, which we spoke about a little while ago, the challenge to maintaining our democratic values, even as we promote our Jewish values, is always going to be a challenge. So I think that we have tremendous amount to be proud of, tremendous laurels on which to rest, but we have to be vigilant and proactive to maintain our democratic qualities into the future. That's fair. Uh, finally, Daniel, uh, what improvements would you like to see the Israeli leadership focus on in the near term? Well, how long do we have? <laughs> you know, I, could I could regale you for hours with that, and I, I bet you would share a lot of that. Look, the first thing we have to do, let's leave the conflict aside because we've spoken about that a lot. The first thing we have to do is restore a sense of unity among Israelis, a unity that has been really very much tested in the last 18, 19 weeks since the protests against judicial reform began. The country is awash in distrust, uh, in resentment, in anger, one might even say hate. Um, and we need leaders, stateswomen and statesmen who can bring Israel back together and have a national conversation about very important issues that have long been swept under the rug. That's number one. Number two, we obviously have a tremendous challenge with the Haredi community. And the challenge is not the issue of the draft. The draft is important because it's symbolic of whether or not Sahal, the IDF, remains a people's army. But we don't really need the Haredi young men to come and serve in the army. What we need is the Haredi people, men and women, to become part of the modern world and to become part of the Israeli economic system. That does not mean that they can't live their religious lives exactly the way that they want to. But we need core curricular studies of English and mathematics and so forth to make their way into those schools. And we need to break somehow the logjam that they have been able to create because ultimately Israel is not economically viable if they continue to grow at the rate that they're growing and are not meaningfully contributing members to the of the economy and so forth. We have a huge issue of corruption in Israel. We've had a prime minister go to jail. We've had a president go to jail. We've had a chief rabbi go to jail. I mean, it's just horrifying how corrupt Israeli politics has become. Um, and I'm not comparing it to other countries. I'm just comparing it to what I want this country to be. 
And we really do need to address the issue of corruption. So we have to look at national unity. We have to address the survivability of Israel's economic structure with a rapidly growing Haredi population. We need to address the issue of corruption. Uh, We need to, I think, reconvene a national conversation about why Zionism is so important. And here I would say, and I'll conclude with this, I think Bibi Netanyahu has done us a great favor entirely accidentally uh, in in pushing forward these judicial reforms and really not expecting the kind of massive pushback that he has been subject to. I think he thought he was basically going to hoodwink what one might call the high-tech sector of Israeli life, but I mean the secular Tel Aviv, Israelis, middle class and northwards of that, who he thought were too busy making careers to care much about this proves that they actually, turns out that they actually care a lot, that many of them, thousands and thousands of them now have Israeli flags on sticks uh, by their front door and they grab them and head out to the protests on a regular basis. While the divisions over judicial reform are sad, worrisome, and sometimes frightening, there's a gift here that we have had a renewal of a Zionist conversation and a renewal of Zionist passion in Israel. And the challenge for us, I think, as a state and with our leaders, many of whom probably have yet to be discovered in light of all of this, is to rekindle the flame of Zionist passion among the left and in the center among secular Jews as well, to remind us all that we have different religious orientations, we have different political orientations, we see the world differently. But one thing we all know is that without this country, Jews both in Israel and abroad would face a very different kind of world. And the flourishing of the Jewish people, whether they're in America, elsewhere, or in Israel, depends on a flourishing Jewish state. And our devotion to the future of the Jewish people has to take, at least in some measure, uh, the form of devotion to the future of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. The book is Impossible Takes Longer, 75 Years After Its Creation, Has Israel Fulfilled Its Founders' Dreams? Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today, Daniel. Really my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.